Hey, welcome to the Happy Rant Podcast. This is Ronnie Martin, and I'm joined with none other than Barnabas Pipe Piper for this special edition of the rant. Special edition because Big T is out of town, and I'm going to be having a discussion with Pipe uh, about a few things, about his background in the family Piper and uh, what life uh, looked like as a PK all those years ago. Maybe how it affects him today. But Pipe, we uh, as we always do, we have some business to attend to. So why don't you use uh, your expert promotional skills to say great things on behalf of those who pay us great money to say those great things? Uh, they, well, they they pay us money, whether or not it's great. Uh, well, <laughs> I just like saying the <laughs> word great a, that many times. Yes, no, it's it's true. Uh, Big thanks to Waterbrook Multnomah for sponsoring uh, sponsoring the podcast again. The title they are highlighting is a book called Known, Finding Deep Friendships in a Shallow World. It is by a husband-wife uh, co-author, Dick and Ruth Foth, or Foth, or Fott. I don't really know how to say their last name, um, mm. which which means um, I feel like I'm, I'm doing them a disservice. But uh, so they they've spent a long time doing counseling and teaching, mentoring, things like that. And the whole premise of the book is and it scratches at something we've actually talked about on the show before is kind of the nature of friendships and finding genuine, deep relationships in a world built around uh, digital connections and transients and how fast everything is moving. And so questions like, is it possible? What does it look like? What is, what does a genuine friendship look like in a world like this? And built around, uh, the idea and the model of Christ's friendships with different people. So his disciples, the group of women that followed him, um, those closer friendships that he had even within the disciples. So again, the book is known finding deep friendships in a shallow world by Dick and Ruth Foth, 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 and uh, we'll drop a link to it in our show notes. So if you just go to happyrantpodcast.com, you can find it there. Um, and uh, it, it is available wherever books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Lifeway, uh, Christian Book Distributors, Mardell Stores, uh, Books A Million. I, could, I mean, I can keep going. Uh, well, there's probably only like three more bookstore chains in existence <laughs> at this point. So again, known, finding deep friendships in a shallow world coming from Waterbrook Multnomah, available now. Go get your copy. Pipe, how do you spell the last name? I'm just curious. F-O-T-H. I mean, I like Foth. Foth is what I would guess. Yeah. Um, But in this day and age, I feel like any people can just pronounce things however they want. Right. So, you know, so, so, right. So there's there's no right or wrong. It's just whatever yeah. we want their last name to be. It, it, Let's go with Foth. I right. feel like I feel like that's the, that's the safest guess. I I certainly don't want to. I don't want to get it wrong. But there is no wrong. So Dick and Ruth Foth. And you know what? When you're on Amazon and you're you're punching in F O T H, it really doesn't matter how you pronounce a name. It just that's matters true. that you get to the book and click proceed to checkout. Yeah. Just put the letters in proper order. F O T H. You'll find it. Absolutely. Well, Pipe, uh, I'm excited to talk to you today as as card-carrying members, if there is such a thing, of this, uh, you know, this reformed theological tribe that we simultaneously 
poke fun at and are a part of, there's there's always going to be some measure of interest in your status. And of course, by status, I mean status as the son of one John Piper. But uh, mainly as the co-host of this podcast. Mainly as the co-host of this of this podcast. But you do have that secondary title, which would yes. be son of John and Noel Piper. And of course, we know John Piper is being... Uh, Gosh, I don't even know how to describe him. The, the modern reformed movement incarnation of Jonathan <laughs> Edwards. Is that – would that be – would he like that? Would he appreciate that uh, description right there? I appreciate it probably. Uh, he would probably deflect it because Edwards is, you know, his greatest theological influence. I don't know if hero is the word that he would use, but, you know, if if yeah. he has a hero, it would be Edwards. Um but then he's he's got a little bit more of the uh, the dramatic flair than Edwards did too. Like Edwards was a was a theologian, thinker, writer who is known to be a fairly um, I don't know what the word is dry preacher. Exactly. Whereas yeah. my dad is is a writer for sure, but is known to be a bit of a uh, a yeah. video game character in the pulpit. Yeah, there's some dra- right that when you watch when you watch JP, there's a little drama going on in the pulpit. I mean, yeah, nobody denies that. Yeah. yeah, it always sort of starts off with that, you know, he kind of has this voice when he starts. And then all of a sudden, you know, four minutes in, it's, something explodes. Yeah, he just goes. The rocket I, takes off. It's like countdown and then. I had a guy tell me the other day, too, a guy close to, to our ministry. And he, he said he, uh, you know, he's kind of a recent uh, JP fan and, uh, you know, kind of become a little bit of a fanboy listening to podcasts and all that good stuff. But he was kind of struck at your dad's sort of this idea that when he he starts sermons and there's not – he doesn't do the typical, you know, let me tell the funny story. Let me just sort of get into everything slowly. He just immediately like opens the word, reads, and then bam, he's like right into it. Like he doesn't yeah, mess he, around. Yeah, and if – so if it's a if it's a sermon – so when he when he was a pastor, he retired in 2013 from the pastorate. I always need to clarify and say retired from the pastorate because anybody who, who is not super familiar might think that actually means retired and that's anathema to him. Yeah. So when he retired from being a full-time pastor at a church, when he preached for 33 years at, at Bethlehem, yeah, he would just dive right into the text and he would just sort of like – because everything followed the sermon before with the, with rare exception. You know, He he preached through like First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Peter, Romans. Yeah. Romans took like nine years, literally. That's not an exaggeration. Yeah, it literally um, was your childhood like you said a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, it was my, my entire adolescence and college life. Um, and, and so yeah, he just would just sort of pick up and go. And then when he preaches at a conference, you know, so it's just a one-off kind of thing, he um, – he just sort of yeah he jumps up there and he's he he lays out the premise you know this is my this is my working premise there's the text and then we hit the gas and go yeah there's no like so I was talking to my friend Steve the other day, and Steve had this thing to say, and it made me think about this. And right. then there's this pithy, you know, a pithy Opening joke. Opening up like it's a comedy routine, yeah, like, right, exactly. Yeah, like, no, he central special, you know, he can be very funny, but it's always by accident. He's not he's he's not a comedic person. And <laughs> There's I think no planned humor in his sermons. <laughs> oh, he would not do that if he tried. And I mean, and that's not a that's not a shot at him. I say these are all things that he would say. I think he sort of he scoffs at humor from the pulpit uh, in in a in a contrived way. Right. Yeah. No, I mean that makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things that that um, you know that our our listeners will be fascinated by is just some of the insight that you might be able to give them and us into what it was like growing up a little bit as son of John, as, as just well as being a, you know, a pastor's kid in general. But I want to start by asking the obvious question. What, what, 
Um, was it and is it hard um, being the son of a uh, of a, a guy like John Piper? Um, y- yes and no. I think it's it's a situation where there are certainly there's certainly greater expectations. There are certainly, uh, you know, there's there's a, a bit more of a, a magnifying glass on things that I do. It it does not help any that I have chosen to live a life in the same sphere that he has great influence in. So I've worked in. I went to the same college that he went to, uh, and then I moved straight into Christian publishing, and I've been part of the conservative evangelical world uh, for my entire life, um, with with a few breaks, but very few. And and so that means that I'm. I'm perpetually around people who, when they meet me, they say, Piper, any relation to, and then they trail off and then I have to fill in. Yes. John is my dad. And so there's, there's just that sense of, of, of expectations that come with awareness. And I think any pastor's kid feels that on a sliding scale to whatever place they are known. Um, but is it difficult? Uh, not anymore. Um, It's just it's become a thing that I'm that I'm pretty adept and comfortable navigating. I think I think the and it and it creates some significant advantages too. Like when I hear authors who talk about how hard it was to get published, I'm like, huh, I didn't have that problem. Um, yeah. And and so and and so I know that there's sort of a privilege that comes with it as well. It gets me in it gets me in places that I would not otherwise get. Now, I feel an obligation to earn the right to be a place once I've gotten there. So my last name might have gotten me published, but I have to write a good enough book that it'll sell or a good enough book that they would want me to write another one. Um and so so there's that there's that uh aspect of it. Um the the times that it's the most frustrating are when people hold me to a standard based on who he is instead mm. of who I am. No and that can get really frustrating um, because it's just, you know, it's hard to kind of find find a place to just sort of be at ease and be myself and not have people be like, well, what would your dad think? Or I'm so surprised John Piper's son talks like this or thinks like this or whatever. Yeah, I mean, are those, so would those be the times where it's kind of hard to shrug it off, you know? It's it's weird. Sometimes it's I mean, I'd say 90 98% of the time it's just sort of water off a duck's back. But there's those random tweets where I say something, I'll tweet something um a joke or something pretty heartfelt. And uh and somebody'll come back and go, "Well, what does your dad think about this?" Right. And there's just like this boiling thing inside me that just wants to light him up like a Christmas tree, which <laughs> is is says more about me than them probably. Um, but sometimes it really gets under my skin. Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, the The flip side of that is is how gratifying it is when people come up and say things, you know, I've, I've worked with them for a little while or I've gotten to know them at church and they're like, you know, when I heard you were John Piper's son, I was kind of like, eh, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I can be friends with this guy. And, you know, you're not anything like I expected, Uh, you know, more easygoing, better sense of humor, whatever it is. They just sort of they see him as this sort of really serious figure. And so they assumed that I would be no fun. And (laughs) I set their mind at ease, apparently. Yeah, that's no, that's really interesting. Well, here's a question. So were were you aware of your dad's influence at a young age or was it just 
life with dad, you know? So people that have dads that have a little bit more of an influence than, than, you know, the average person's parents, um, you know, sometimes, uh, to the outside world, um, you know, people look at their kids and think, oh, what must it be like when in (laughs) essence, you know, to you, he's just dad. Was it, was it more like that? Um, life at home, he was just dad. Like he never carries himself like he's famous. Um, and so, and he certainly didn't, you know, <clears throat> nobody in my, in my home would have put up with that anyway. You know, a famous person is never less respected than in their own home, yeah, um, in, in, in both healthy ways and, and occasionally not healthy ways. Um, but none of us were impressed with my dad's status. So when I say us, I have three older brothers, I have a younger sister, and then obviously my mom. He was, so he was just dad at home and that was a good thing, um, in terms of awareness of his influence, a lot of that just comes with age and maturity and being aware of a circle that's bigger than your own immediate life anyway. So I was aware of his his place in the church from, for as long as I can remember, you know, just because ev- literally everybody at our church knew who I was when I was little because it was a smaller church uh, – mm. Well, smaller than it became. So, it was, you know, three, four hundred people when I was in early elementary school, and they just sort of grew steadily over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I knew that I knew that he was a kind of a big fish in that pond. But then, like middle school, high school is where I started to realize, oh, people know who he is. Like, there's a pastors' conference that we host, and hundreds of pastors come from around the country because because it's hosted by him. Right. Uh, and and you know, they got really good speakers there too, but. Uh, and then it, it, it was just sort of normal, you know, once or twice a year to have a box of books show up that was his newest publication. So, um, like I remember, I think the first one that I really remember was, um, future grace Mm. was, I think it was the first one that's like, I just remember opening it up on the kitchen table and it, and that was kind of the one that stood out to me as like, my dad writes books, you know, <laughs> right. like I knew he did that before. Cause that was, I don't know, that was like a seventh or 12th book. I can't keep track. Um, but then just even that was just sort of a part of life. And it didn't, it wasn't until really later high school and college that I realized like he's, he's nationally known in this particular camp. Yeah. It's funny that it took that long for it to sort of, you know, descend upon you and give you that sort of realization. That kind of leads me to another question though. I mean, people probably wonder, um, about, you know, the theological icons that must have stepped through the door of the Piper household. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. your, your dad keeps company with all of these pillars of, you know, of, 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 you know, modern church culture and of our tribe and, and what have you. Um, any, any, any people, any stories that stick out about dudes that walk through the doors and you had to spend the night with them, eat dinner with them, you know, those types of things? Yeah, I mean, so so the the most regular consistent time when when prominent, you know, preachers, theologians would be at our place was was the the pastor's conference. So growing, I think the pastor's conference started late 80s, 89, something like that. Oh, wow, I didn't know uh, that. I didn't know it been going that long. Wow. It was, and it was really small then. You know, it was, it was much more regional thing. Now it was, you know, that was before Desiring God as a ministry even existed. So yeah. it was just hosted by the church, you know, so it was like the church admins were kind of helping and it was a lot, very volunteer based and small. But for the first probably 15 years of that conference, give or take, uh, so it was, you know, it's a, it's a Monday night, all day Tuesday, most of the day Wednesday, and then people ship out, just kind of like your typical pastor's conference schedule. Every Tuesday night, 
my mom would host dinner for the speakers for whatever volunteer was hosting them. So sort of, you know, driving them around, getting them to and from. And then if they brought spouses or family with them. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, we had kind of the who's who of Reformed Christianity just sort of coming through our place. And and my mom's way of hosting is a very sort of family style, make yourself at home. She's not a, she's not a formal hostess. Right. She's a, she's a, an, it's easy to be there kind of hostess. So like grab a seat wherever you want. We've got drinks on the table, you know, just sort of like that kind of thing. And so it was usually like a massive urn of, of like soup or stew or in like homemade bread and just sort of something really simple that you can feed 30 people with. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you just, I mean, John MacArthur, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, like, you know, George Verwer, like, I don't know, just they were all there. And uh, I'm, I remember most of them just being pretty boring. Yeah. <laughs> that was my impression as a kid. Uh, there was a handful who stood out. Um, so the guy who founded Frontiers Missions, Greg Livingstone, was always awesome to have over because – he came back multiple times because they, they always had a mission focused speaker and for a while he, he was he was maybe every two or three years and he would make he would make bets with me and my brother, uh, the one just older than me, um, to see if we could name a country he had not been to. And then he said, I'll, you know, I'll give you a dollar for every country you can name I haven't been to. And uh, so it was sort of like a geography quiz for us and also kind of just a fun interaction. And he didn't realize that like we had a world map hanging in our dining room. We were sort of <laughs> geography fiends. And so he ended up owing us like 30 bucks and uh, over the course of a few years. But he, but he would bring it in like yen and rupees nice. and pesos, which means he probably paid us 72 cents. Yeah. Um, but it was like a pile of foreign currency. Uh, so that was that was kind of fun. And more importantly, um, you know, uh, gambling was not frowned upon in the Piper household. I think that's the big well, takeaway. Well, it was right it was it was a much more <laughs> reward based system than it was right. gambling because it wasn't a system where like we would not have lost anything. It wasn't like we owed him a dollar if we guessed wrong, you know, right. or something like that. Um, it, you had no double or nothing. No, none of the none of those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I I have very few memories of like I was never in awe of the people. I it was mainly just like. Be polite, and and I just mainly remember like they have boring conversations, and most of them don't talk to me. And this was kind of, I mean, I mean, is it's it's fair to say too? I mean, this was way before the era of these guys becoming like bona fide celebrities and having a culture surrounding them that really propped them up. The way in recent years that they've been sort of put on these pedestals. I mean, these were guys that were just pastoring churches, or they had parachurch ministries, like R.C. Sproul did all those years with Ligonier, like, and they're just coming in to speak. So Sproul, MacArthur, Packer—they were—they were big in that generation. I like, guess that's true. They, were, I mean, because because yeah. you, you talk about like Packer wrote "Knowing God" in what the seventies? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and so it was that was a book that influenced. It influenced the generation of reformed leaders who influenced the current generation of reformed leaders. So like Packer was the influencer of Piper who was the influencer of like Chandler. And so in just sort of generationally speaking uh, and, and, and in writing because he, he was writing a reformed theology when nobody else was doing that. Well, and that's Sproul, my point. So was, so was Packer really as Packer as he is right now though when, you're go, when you go back 
30 years or 25 years? I mean, does he, did he carry the, you know, when you say Packer now, everybody goes, oh, Packer. I mean, was he, was he Packer like that? Like, I think he was. And maybe, maybe more so. Again, you're, you're, you're calling on recollections of like an 11 and 12 year old, right, which exactly. means. My my qualifications at that age for who was cool were were really different <laughs> than uh, and would than, they be any different now? Right? So it's, yeah. yeah, I mean it, it would be the exact same now. Actually, I'd still go in and be like, hey, nobody talks to me, and they're all really boring. <laughs> but um, but I mean, but Packer has been exactly the same for thirty years. Yeah, you know, sure. he is the same steady Canadian. You know, he's he has a dry wit, but it's like you got to listen real close. And uh, you know MacArthur's been MacArthur, and I don't remember I don't remember Sproul much. Um, but like, yeah, I mean Paul Tripp, and in more recent years, and and just different guys like that. Now now they've they, they've done away with the Tuesday evening dinner at my parents' house just because the conference is really big, so they do like a sort of a, a catered thing at the at the venue. But and I've I've been to that once or twice, and it feels much more like a you know it almost feels like a. Like a, it's like a hosted, almost like a fundraiser kind of dinner, even though they're not fundraising. Um, and so, yeah, it just it, it, it didn't dawn on me till later that that was a really unusual thing to have happen. Yeah. You know, kind of like when you talk when we did the episode a little while ago about uh, all the music stuff, and you're just like, oh, I shared the stage with this guy and this guy, and I talked to this guy. And like in some people's minds, that that's like a it bends their brains. Right. You know, you know the guys from Audio Drone and Newsboys and DC Talk, and you're like, yeah, we just we were coworkers in a sense, or like we crossed paths. Right. And that was a similar kind of feeling to me, and part of the reason why I have no awe whatsoever of Christian celebrities. Yeah, I know. And I think that's, uh, yeah. And I think you just, I think you just really summed it up really nicely. It's just, it's whatever is familiar to you and whatever becomes your standard and your normal, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's hard for it to become something more than what it actually is. Um, but you know, I want to, I want to switch gears here and talk a little bit about, uh, your book pipe. Um, you wrote Mm -hmm. a book called the pastor's kid, um, Man, and obviously, you know, I don't know that anybody could think of a better guy to write this book. I mean, of course, there's there's many other pastors' kids, but given who your dad is in this particular day and age, the influence uh, that he's had, um, why don't you why don't you give the the listeners, give our listeners, our faithful Happy Rant listeners, some insight into what was behind that? Why did you write it? What was at stake writing a book like that for you? Yeah, the why I wrote it. That's. It, it's not a thing that I that I was like stewing on for a long time, and so it didn't come from this place of like it boiled over out of me all of a sudden, okay. you know, after years of sort of of thinking on it. I guess I had been preparing to write it for a long time without realizing it. Um, no, when I was uh, so this would have been so in in 2010, uh, I went through a real significant time of of I'll call it a faith crisis, not in the sense of like questioning it does God exist and things like that but just a profound experience due to my own failures and and just mm. being confronted with the gap between what I all the things that I knew and what my life looked like and and trying to to sort out what are the things that I really believe which I think is a question that pastors kids in general are either terrified to confront or they confront it on a daily basis Hmm. Um, because, because all of us know what we're supposed to believe. 
uh, the answers are really apparent. You know, it's it's every Sunday in the pulpit. All the the moral expectations are there. The, the theological expectations are there. It's it's all right there in front of us. Um, and so so 2010, that I would have been so I was mid mid 20s. Is that right? Yeah, mid to late 20s. Um, and so this wasn't like a this wasn't like a teenage adolescent thing. Like I I had I was I was married. I had kids. Um, yeah. So this was an this was an adult thing, and. And out of that came the realization that a lot of my faith struggles or the, the things that I was having trouble kind of owning and finding an identity in Christ stemmed from experiences as a pastor's kid. So mm-hmm. that's not to blame my parents and it's not to blame the church because I'm still an active participant in church. I love my parents and I'm a supporter of pastors. So this is, you know, it wasn't a, oh, they're at fault. It was just my upbringing created these challenges. Um, And so I just started kind of journaling, reflecting, jotting down completely disorganized thoughts as they would come to me. Um, And then somewhere 2011, 2012, maybe, I got asked to write a couple articles, one for Gospel Coalition and one for uh, for Table Talk, hmm. um, the Ligonier's, Ligonier's yeah. magazine. And um, I'd started blogging maybe a year before that. And so they, they'd picked up some of my writing and said, you know, thought, they thought I could be a, a, a helpful voice. And, and so the one, for, the one for Table Talk was the one that really tipped things for me because I was flying to a conference in Austin where I was going to go work. I was working for a publishing company and um, – so I was like, oh, I'll use my, my two or three hours on the plane to just sketch out a rough draft of this article. And, and the article was just how to pray for pastor's kids. They have, mm. a, they have a highlight section in their magazine about yeah. to help church members know how to pray for ministry families. Um, and and I, was, I was about – it was a 900-word article, and I was like 120 words in. And all of a sudden, I just, like, I just broke down crying on the airplane mm. – like hiding in the window seat, hoping that the person next to me was sound enough asleep and their noise canceling headphones were really, really noise canceling. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> sobbing, but like tears are coming down my face and, and just realizing that, that to write that had ripped the lid off of something. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, I got that article out and I got the gospel coalition one out and then I started to see all the responses come in. Oh, right. um, yeah. And, and so it, and it was from two groups of people. It was pastors' kids, some of whom were like 55-year-old women, but mm. they still see themselves as pastors' kids. You know, my dad was a pastor, and I have struggled with X for, for 40 years. Wow. Um, and, and others who were 16, and, and they're like, you know, I'm at odds. I'm at loggerheads with my parents right now. Um, and then the other was younger pastors or, or pastors with, with kids still at home, really, saying – this really helped me see uh, things that I ought to be doing differently with my kids or it opened up the door to have a conversation with my kids. And all of a sudden I realized like this is – it didn't just ripple it off for me. This touched a nerve with a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so I just started, again, just sort of taking those thoughts that I had written down, writing down more, organizing it as well as I could and realizing – there's a lot here. Maybe I should write something longer. Prior to that, I had never considered writing a book. I had no, no intention of writing a book. Um, I didn't hmm. set out to write books. Hmm. Uh, it, it was not a. It wasn't a goal of mine. Um, and so then, what I did was I put together probably a fifteen twenty question survey, pretty open ended questions, 
and sent it to 40 or 50 pastor's kids. So younger, older men, women, different denominations. Some of them had uh, pastors who were, uh, who were mothers. Some of them, you know, some of them were much more traditional, kind of all over the map, literally and figuratively. Just to see the thing that I needed to know is, is my experience similar to theirs? Yeah. Because my dad is not like other pastors in a lot of ways. Yeah. But I felt like my experience might be really similar in, in significant ways as well. And out of those, you know, I probably got 30 or 40 of those surveys back. And there was only one person out of all of those who was like, I don't know what you're talking about. My life was fine. Everybody else highlighted particular areas of struggle, which, 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 you know, so struggles of faith, struggles of expectation, struggles of uh, people uh, demanding things of them or expecting certain, you know, whatever it is. And so that was the kind of the clincher for me that, okay, this is, this is a thing that, that can be written into a book. And so I put together a book proposal. I took it to three or four publishers, um, one of whom I decided not to go with, one of whom turned me down, and the third, uh, the third uh, offered me the book deal. And so, hmm. uh, so I wrote The Pastor's Kid, and it came out – so I guess I wrote it in 2012, 2013, and then it came out summer of 2014. Yeah. I mean I, I think – I mean you said a couple of significant things, and, and one of the things that kind of strikes me is that – you know, given your role, given the position that you were in, given that you're not a, you know, you're, you're a long ways away from, from being a kid, you know, I mean, that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Your growing up years are way behind you. And, um, but nevertheless, there was still like a battle that you had to engage your mind in, you know, in terms of how the past is, is maybe still informing, you know, the present for you. And it seems like that's something that PKs, they, they have to engage in. They, they have to, they have to kind of they kind of have to step in instead of just kind of swimming on the surface or trying to find ways in which they can say, "Look, I'm not having anything to do with any of that because of my upbringing and my childhood." And um, it sounds like you just said, "Well, look, I gotta I gotta work this out because I don't want to I don't want to just simply walk away. I don't want to simply just become a victim in this." So my question to you is this: What do you say? to kids, especially PKs, or even just kids that had parents that just gave themselves a minister, you know, a ministry of any kind. What, what do you say to kids who simply try to run as far as they can the other way? I mean, what do you say to kids like that? Um, kids, adults, you know, people that yeah, have that path. Yeah. Pe- yeah. People who, who were kids in that context. Exactly. Um, well, first I completely understand the, the desire, maybe it's a temptation. Um, that's probably a better word for it to to just split. Now, I I think you can you can distance yourself from the ministry without distancing yourself from the faith. There's a lot of people who do that. Um, you know, so they they are faithful to Christ, but they they find their joy in another field. Uh, and you know, their God has given them gifts and art or business or music or whatever. Um, and I think that's great. That's, that's not exactly the same thing though, because that's not a, that's not a rejection or a rebellion. It's just, it's finding one's own path in a way that is honoring to God. And I think that's really good. Um, I think people who are inclined to flee, to split, to not deal with the issues Mm -hmm. or to just cut and run, running never takes you anywhere. You, you, cause there's no, there's no destination. Yeah. And you're still being driven by the thing you're trying to escape because the only direction you have is away from that thing. 
Um, so, so it's, it's a life of avoidance instead of a life of direction. Um, so you're marked by all the stuff you don't want to be instead of being marked by a sense of progress, a sense of identity, a sense of, uh, direction. And, and so you will end up becoming more miserable unless you find a way to arrive somewhere or, or to find a road that takes you somewhere. Um, and so that's, that's why, so the subtitle of my book is finding your own faith and identity, because those are the things that are directional. It is, it is your relationship with Christ. It is, it is your, um, your identity in Christ. It is, you know, not your parents, not your backgrounds, not your denominations, not the expectations. None of those things matter, um, for you. And so if you're, if you're fleeing, you're not finding anything, you're, you're, you're just avoiding things. And so that's, that would be, that would be just sort of my first statement. Yeah. Or first thought to them is where are you going? What do you, what do you, what do you hope to accomplish? Um, that's, that's like a child throwing a temper tantrum, except in grown up form. Um, yeah. And I think that's, no, I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, cause it's what you're describing is, is that you're, there's a sense where you're, you're fighting the wrong battle. You're not really engaging in the battle that actually needs to be fought, is what it's yeah. Like you're, you're not engaging yeah. in anything. You're 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 fleeing. I mean, it's, it's life on the run um, instead of instead of life facing the things. Now, facing the difficulties of of a childhood in ministry, it it can be it it can be profoundly difficult. But usually, if you don't face it, the difficulties become greater, um, as opposed to just. Fig, you know, doing doing the necessary things to figure out, and I and I'm speaking vaguely because it's there's not a there's there's not a formula. Uh, yeah. Doing the necessary things to figure out negative feelings about the church or struggles to connect with Christ on a personal level. I think a lot of pastors' kids have trouble with that. This idea of a personal relationship with Christ is verbiage that we use all the time. Yes, but but think about it, personal relationship with Christ. Like that's, that's a hard thing to just, you can't drum that up. Yeah. So especially not when it's the most familiar thing in the world to you and seems sort of rote and mundane. Yeah. And I think, I think that's really good, man. In the, in terms of, you know, kind of what you alluded to there, which is, you know, these are people, you were a person that saw the good, the bad, and the ugly when it came to the church, right? So yes. one of the things that you probably even today have to do is guard against cynicism, discouragement, and, and because it's easy to let those things be sort of your reason to check out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have a tendency towards being contrarian and uh, which lends itself to cynicism. Yeah. Um, and the church is an easy target for me. Yeah. I, I can walk into any evangelical church, be there for a Sunday, maybe two, and I could probably put my finger on 80% of the cultural issues that that church has. <laughs> and I don't say that to brag. Yeah. That's just, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like a, it's like a doctor. You can diagnose people by the symptoms after one or two visits 80% of the time. Um, unless it's a really random, weird, rare thing. And the church doesn't have a lot of really random, weird, rare things. It has the same stuff over and over and over again. Right. Um, which means that when I walk into a church, whether it's the church that I attend regularly or, or any other church, I have to try really hard to be 
to be part of it and not be evaluating it. Yeah. Um, because it's ev- evaluation and observation is much, much easier. Uh, it's, it's, it's the lazy way out for me. Um, but it's also the, the easiest way to become disenchanted. Um, and, and so for me, the, one of the things that has helped tip is just to realize, um, and this, this is going to sound cliche, but a lot of times cliches exist for good reason, um, is the familial aspect of church. It is every church is a dysfunctional family, but if you are part of a family, unless it is an aggressively terrible situation, you remain committed to it. Yeah. You still see people. You still love people. You're still there for people. You still work through the stuff. You might fight like cats and dogs. Maybe we need a little bit more fighting in the church and a little bit less passive aggressive. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but to think of it in those terms instead of organizational terms, because as an organization, churches are generally ugh, yeah, they're pretty, pretty they're bad. pretty crappy. Yeah. No, that's a no. That's a really that that's a really good way. That's a really good way to put it. We're better for it. We're better for sticking it out. We're better for seeing what God might do because we have we have decided to stay committed. You know, it's funny too is the way you describe going to other churches and you're able to you're able to sort of pull them apart and it's hard not to be critical. I mean, you just described every pastor's issue, which is you go to another church and all you're doing is you're monitoring and you're observing and you're seeing everything happening of which yeah. you're saying, I can do that better. I'm seeing a big issue here. This thing feels a little tilted the wrong way. It's almost like it's hard for you to engage because all you see, uh, you know, you, you become very clinical about it very quickly. Yeah. yeah and, and you listen to a sermon and you think how you would preach that text instead right. of appreciating and absorbing how that preacher preached the text. I, I fight that every Sunday. Um, is it, it is easy, and I'm not even I've never been a vocational preacher, but I grew up under somebody who is considered by most to be a, a pretty profoundly good preacher, and I do a fair amount of speaking. And so between the two of those, I have <laughs> I have a standard that I can't really help. And so I listen to a preacher, and my thought is always first, well, I don't know if I would have said it like that, <laughs> and then I realize that th- that's not. You know, that's the opposite of of how one should be in yeah. a place of worship and in kind of in a stance of worship. Yeah, the approach is a little bit off. But having said that, let's let's talk about this for one second. Where where are you at? Like when you listen to, or if you even listen to your pops preach, I mean, are, is it hard for you to even listen to him as a preacher, or do you? I mean, is is he a go to for you if you ever you know want to grab a podcast and listen to a sermon, or is is it just somebody that you've you've heard so much you just can't even return to it? Um, yeah, I'll, yeah, this, I'll I'll answer the second part first. The answer is uh, no, he's not a go to for me, yeah. but neither is anybody else. Okay. Um, I don't I don't listen to sermons on podcasts uh, almost ever. Sometimes I will, you know. There there are times when I'm like I there's the particularly spiritually dry times, or if I've heard that somebody preached a sermon on, on a text or on a topic that is, that is something that I, that I ought to listen to that I, that I'd benefit from. Um, but, but no, he's not a go-to for me. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. The first is what you were talking about, which is I've heard my dad say so many words over my lifetime. If, right. if I want to hear words from my dad, I would rather either sit down across the table from him and have lunch or call him on the phone since we don't live in the same state. You know, right. just that, those are interactions that are better. 
Yeah, you know, it's, it's called a conversation. Yeah, yeah and it's called a relationship. Right. Uh, I do not relate to my dad's preaching. That is now. That's also the thing that has connected to hundreds of thousands of people. And so there are going to be people who hear me say this, and they're going to think I'm a very jaded person. Um, and I, I might be. But, uh, but a lot of it is just – it's just a familiarity thing and a relational sure. dynamic. It's not, you know, it's not a hatred of his preaching by any means. Yeah, um, the other thing is that I just – having been in the family of a celebrity preacher – um, I need to distance myself from podcast preaching, conference preaching. It's just funny because I'm at conferences, you know, seven times a year or something. But otherwise, I don't enjoy going to church. Yeah. You know, I go to a smallish church with a pastor who f- preaches faithfully and he does a good job. Yeah. But he's not the world's best orator. Right. And uh, so to go listen to people who are the world's best preachers or, you know, you put that in quotes, but that does not help me appreciate a Sunday morning in East Nashville. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, and that that is something that's been discussed when you can uh yeah, when you are when you have easy access to the guys that are, you know, gifted in the sense that they uh that you know, they get they get a lot of downloads, you know, on a weekly basis as opposed to, you know, 98% of everybody else who yeah. doesn't. But um those are the guys people are attracted to because they have a way of communicating that has uh, you know, Given them an audience for that, but let's uh, let's lighten the mood, man. As we're kind of getting to the end of our podcast here, and uh, let's talk about um, how about a story? How about a story of a moment or two that sort of encapsulates your your pastor kidness? Some just some crazy stories that that either people who weren't pastor kids are going to laugh at, and ones that are going to absolutely relate to. Oh man, let's see. Well, I think I, I think the funniest story um, is. So this was – it wasn't when I was growing up. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was right when I moved away from home, literally the day I moved away from home. So I went to, went to Wheaton College and drove down there in, in a minivan loaded up with all my, all my stuff for my dorm room. And I arrive at Traber Dorm at Wheaton to move in for freshman year. And I walk into the lobby. You know, they have the sign-in for new students and they have, they have the whole welcome, you know, sort of the, the, the student leaders who are there to welcome and – and uh, and I sign in, and the girl who's signing me in, um, you know, she she welcomes me. She says, "Oh, you're on floor seven. I'm on this floor. Our our floors are like the brother sister floor thing that Whedon does." And 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 she's like, "Oh, and that guy over there." She points to a guy sitting in a chair, kind of across the lobby, has has been waiting for you. Oh boy! I look over. I don't recognize him. Um, he's been waiting for you for two hours. Wow! Just sitting there. So he didn't even go to Wheaton. He was a guy oh, from the community uh, who found out that I was attending Wheaton and waited for two hours to to help me move in. You wow. know, like three suitcases or two suitcases and a couple of boxes and a stereo, you know. And, uh, and, and it was just because of my last name. And – and I, I just sort of remember going blank after that because, like, I don't remember him leaving. Right. Uh, I hope I hope I was polite. I doubt I was. I'm sure my mom was polite though, and she was there. Piper, so, it's like he lives next. He still lives next door to you right now. Yeah. Well, no, I, I I know who he is now, and there was there was a bit of a family connection which I wasn't aware of at the time. Um, you know, so sort of his parents knew my parents kind oh, of thing, but like yeah. I, I yeah. had no idea, and it was just sort of. 
I, you know, I had had this, this grand idea of leaving home and making my own way in the world and kind of escaping some of the expectations and literally minute one on campus. <laughs> There's somebody waiting for me. And then, you know, so I settle into the dorm and it's like day two on campus and I meet a couple of people as you, as one does freshman year. And so you decide, you know, you decide who's going to be your best friends for the rest of your life, 48 hours into college. And, uh, and so we walking over to the dining hall to grab dinner during orientation week and we walk inside and somebody comes at a dead sprint up to me. Are you John Piper's son? Doesn't introduce himself. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't ask my name. Doesn't yeah. even know my name. I don't think he just knows that I'm John Piper's son, and and that was one where uh, I I have sort of half regret and half sort of smug smile. I just completely blew him off. Um, I was just like, "Yep," and just walked past him. Wow. Um, which okay, mostly regret. That was kind of a douche move, but uh, but so like that that was my first forty eight hours. Uh, having moved away from home, um, there was there was more than one occasion. There's there's one instance I remember. I, I think I wrote about this one in the book, but I was driving to like a Wednesday night youth group, I think it was, or a Sunday night youth thing, and my friend and I were driving two separate cars, and so we both peel into the church parking lot, going you know seventy two miles an hour, um, and listening to. I think I was listening to Lincoln Park's Hybrid Theory. Nice. Uh, because at 17, one does not have great taste in music. And uh, and just – and he's listening to like Dr. Dre or something. I don't know. We're Sweet. just – it's it's loud and it's you know profane yeah. and fun. And uh, and then we both sort of stroll into church. Illinois, too, by the way. So. What's that? It's Illinois too, so carry on. No, that was Minnesota. Oh, Minnesota. Okay. So yeah, that was where I was going on. Okay. Yeah. No, this this was pri- sorry. This was prior to that. This was when I was in high school. Okay. Uh, and and uh, he just strolls into church right past this lady, and she she literally collars me. She gets a finger inside the collar of my shirt, and uh, and just roundly chastises me for my for my driving. Wow. For my music choice, for the profanity of the lyrics. Although I'm sure she couldn't hear the lyrics. Um, yeah, did she really just, know who Lincoln Park was? I mean, let's be honest. I, she just knew that it was like it was bad. You know, it could have been Skillet. She would have known that. She wouldn't have known the difference. Um, and he was listening to Dr. Dre louder than I was listening to Lincoln Park. And like, let's be honest, one of those is is probably more aggressive than the yeah, other. Far worse. Yes. Yeah. Better music, but you yeah. know that's that's a separate podcast. Um, and I mean, it's just th- that was just sort of a typical instance of the way that a the way that a, a pastor's kid can be can can be held to a standard that's arbitrary uh, and separate from everybody else because she just didn't know him. She didn't know him. He has, you know, he'd been at the church for seven or eight years, and his family was faithful. You know, still attends the church, and and he and I are still friends. And uh, it's just he was not the past. <clears throat> he wasn't the pastor's kid, and she wasn't like a staff wife. It wasn't like one of my family <laughs> friends. It was just like a lady at the church who was yeah. who thought that she had access to to me in that way. Um, I think the I think the other the other story. Uh, I mean, this, and this was just sort of a constant was the way that like every Sunday school class. So from like probably first or second grade up through high school, you know, the teacher would be teaching and I would ask a question and there would just be silence. And then slowly 
Like all the heads would turn and look at me. (laughs) Because – It was inevitable, wasn't it? Well, my problem was that that was both pressure and expectation but also like a real ego boost because I I love knowing all the answers and having an opinion on things. I mean anybody who listens to this podcast knows this. No, we all know that. This and so, with you right now. yeah, no, you're, you're nodding in agreement. I can hear you. I can hear you. Yeah, nodding. You can hear my neck, right? Not making that <laughs> nodding sound. Yeah. And, uh, and so, and so it became like this, this sort of, uh, vicious cycle of, I don't want to have to answer all the questions, but I love answering all the questions. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's funny, man. That's, that's fascinating. Well, pipe, man, thanks for chatting with us on, uh, the special edition of, uh, of the rant and, uh, man, I'm sure your book has really been helpful to, uh, to a lot of people that have, uh, that have come from your background. It's the pastor's kid by, of course, our, our own Barnabas Piper. What, uh, what house did that come out on? What, what publishing house? That was David C. Cook. David C. Cook. Yeah. So go grab a copy Dave. and go came right from Dave. Came from Dave. You can go to Amazon. You can go on any, any of the, uh, any of the outlets where we buy books these days and you can grab it. So I encourage you, uh, to do so. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Pipe. And uh, when we come back, it'll be, the, uh, it'll be the trio. We'll be back in all of our glory together. And uh, we also will have some information about our uh, live in Louisville uh, podcast coming up this like Real October. information. This is, this is not a mythological event. It's this not is... mythological. It's, it's actually happening. We got the details all nailed down. We don't want yep. to talk about them quite yet, but they're, uh, they are forthcoming. And they we will are, be indeed. We're pumped. So, uh, again, as we always do, we have wandered to and fro Rachel the Held Evans The Happy Rant is brought to you by Resonate Recordings Resonate has helped us with our editing and mastering pretty much from the beginning of the podcast If you go to resonaterecordings.com you can see the full range of services they offer so if you're considering starting a podcast they are the ones we recommend going with. Mark and Jake do a fantastic and timely job with all sorts of podcast services. Again, go to resonaterecordings.com to see their prices, to connect with them and ask any questions, and to see what they can do to help you launch, edit, master, and improve your podcast. In a world where relationships are easily broken and often discarded, the Rebuilding Us Marriage Podcast is your lighthouse, guiding the way to hope, restoration, and transformation in Christ. I'm your host and marriage coach, Dana Shea. Join me as we discuss the necessary tools for rebuilding marriages from adversity, betrayal, and disconnection. It's time to reignite love as we rebuild marriages from the ground up. Listen to the Rebuilding Us Marriage podcast on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.